to Luke chapter 24. Yeehaw! Yes, yes! <laughs> ah, if you would open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We celebrate the second week of Advent this morning. And we will rejoice. Yes, we will rejoice. We are going to be having baptisms here in a little bit, if you have made a profession of faith in Jesus, or if today is the day that Jesus grabs a hold of your heart and you want to put your faith in him, um, you can come and join us in the baptismal tank. Pastor Lee will be back there. He could walk you through what baptism means to ensure that you're making a proper profession of an outward confession of an inward movement of the spirit that's going on in your life. And um, man, there's no shame in you coming back there in your jeans, and your shirt, and your jacket, you know who I'm talking to. I ain't going to mention no names. So uh, if anybody wants to come back, I'd love to see you. So I say it every year. I'm going to say it again this year. Christmas is my favorite time of year. Anybody feel me on that? Anybody? Yeah? All right. Good. I, I, I love it. It, it, it. It's my favorite church season. Um, and it's not like... There's some kind of competition. It's not like I pit Christmas against Easter, right? You know, it's not, it's not like they're fighting against. You can't go wrong with either. So if that one's your favorite, that's cool too. You don't have to choose. You can love them both. But people love Christmas for a variety of reasons. I love Christmas songs. I love them. I listen to Christmas music. Um, I don't understand people that complain about Christmas music playing in the stores when they go shopping. Well, what else do you want to be listening to? The other garbage that they're pumping out the other 11 months of the year? Come on, man. You get a freebie. They're playing music about Jesus, or you walking through the mall. Come on now with that. So, I, I love it. I love, I love Christmas songs. I love that they're theologically rich. Um, I love that we are joining, literally, our brothers and sisters around the world. Literally. This is not figurative. This morning, we were singing the same songs that people everywhere in, in Africa, in Asia, in South America, that they were singing this morning. They may have been singing in a different language. They may have had a different pigmentation to their skin, but it doesn't matter. We were singing the same songs and praising the same Savior with them this morning. Who couldn't get excited about that? And not only that, but we're singing the same songs that people have sung for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we're building in to a generational thing that has just continued and we get to be a part of that here this morning. I love it. Not only that, but these songs that have been sung for hundreds of years, and they are so theologically rich. Take the time to think about the lyrics. Hail, incarnate deity. Man, that alone, that's Philippians 2, 1 through 11, summed up in one sentence. How cool is that? Another thing I love about Christmas is all the decorations um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, everywhere you go that has Christmas decorations, you can literally be reminded that there was a Savior that was born in Bethlehem. Um, another one is most Christian decorations. We've taken the meaning out of them. A lot of us don't know what they meant, why we have a wreath, why we have a tree. That might be a good Advent series one day. But those things were rich with Christological tradition that pointed to Jesus. I love it. I think the, 
biggest reason that Christmas is such a magical time is the season of stories, when people love stories. There is this channel that every day plays a Christmas movie during December because people love stories. From Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. until Christmas at 6 p.m., I know it well, they play the Christmas story. And I know it well because I've looked like Ralphie since I was like 12, and I still, I still do. Uh, yes! Uh, I know. I look like Ralphie. You could, point, you could point it out. It's all good. But, man, people watch it. I watch it like 30 times on repeat because I love stories. But stories are such a part of this year. And as a Christian, it's my favorite time because it's not just celebrating stories. It's celebrating the story. See, the Bible is not a book that consists of a bunch of stories about a bunch of heroes and a bunch of good moral lessons to learn along the way. The Bible is one story about one hero who performed the greatest act of love of all time. And through his love, we can be with him and be transformed into his likeness. That's quite a story. What I want to show you this morning is the Bible was never intended to be a bunch of disconnected stories. It's pointing to the bigger story. And as a result, our lives were never supposed to be a bunch of disconnected, fragmented stories. Just like the Bible is one book telling one story about one hero in Christ, we no longer live to ourselves, but we live for Christ. And our lives are not supposed to be fragmented. They are supposed to be a breathing example that shows the world that a hero has been born in Bethlehem. Look, I'm, I'm going to break it down to you. I'm, I'm just telling you now, I'm going to let my freak flag fly this morning. So um, the world is looking for a hero, all right? Half the movies that come out right now are superhero fantasies for adults. And a bunch of adult men... Go and watch a bunch of adult men in tights pretending to have magical powers. Grown men. While denying the true superhero. Come on with that, man. And it rakes in millions. And we have a warrior who was born and proclaimed war on Christmas. This is war that was proclaimed that first Christmas morning. And he lived a life of a hero, and he died the death of a hero. He could have just walked off that cross at any point. He could have literally just said, I'm tired of hanging here. I don't want to do this anymore. But instead, he did what no hero could do. He conquered the ultimate super villains, sin, death, and Satan. And instead of walking off that cross, he decided that he just didn't want to be dead anymore. Name me a hero that can do that. And then he walked out of death as the true warrior. That's our hero. That is our story. That is our song that we proclaim this morning. And I want to unfold it the way that he unfolded the story himself. Look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. From that very day, the two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself. Now this is after the resurrection, mind you. And they didn't recognize that it was him. He drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation you guys are having as you walk? And they were stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, 
are you the only visitor? This might be <laughs> the dumbest question in the Bible. Um, <laughs> are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened to you in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love how Jesus just put people on. He was just like, tell me about it. I want to know these things you speak of. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him over and condemned him to death and crucified him. But we had really hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We just sang that, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. They're saying, we hoped that he was the one that was going to do that. But their conclusion was that he wasn't. Yet beside all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, women are a company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and said they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So the plot thickens. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women have said. They did not see, and he said, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all things and enter his glory? And this is what I want to point out. It says, in beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures of the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village in which they were going and acted as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it is towards evening that the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then he vanished. And check this out. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened up the scriptures? Let me hear you say when he opened up the scriptures. That's when it happens, man. This book is living and active and powerful. When he opened up the scriptures and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So look, Christ is walking down the street with these two fools that just don't get it. So he graciously takes the time to explain it to them. And it says in verse 27, he says, beginning with the law and the prophets, he started to walk them through all of these things and saying that all of it was always about concerning himself. And then they get to this aha moment in verse 31 and 32, where they say, oh, man, that was him. That was Jesus. We're in our hearts beating. We knew it the whole time. How, how, how do we not see it? Our hearts are beating in us, and we're showing us, and they get it. They see that Christ was not a story, that Christ has been and always will be the story. It's not like the Bible has a bunch of heroes, but Christ is the greatest of those heroes. The Bible is filled with a bunch of cowards, losers, failures, and people who fell short of the glory of God in their attempts to even give him glory. The Bible's filled with one hero named Jesus who came and ransomed. And he explained to these two disciples that these folks that they esteemed were all pointing to him the whole time. And their stories come to summation in him. And he is the one story. The story, all history, is truly his story, as you've heard. Well, what must it have been like to have realized it's all him? I love, there's no passage that I like to put myself in the middle of more than Luke 24. And just think like when it says their eyes were open and their hearts were beating, what must that have been like? Think about it. Like, use your imagination. Come on. God gave you one for a reason. 
think through what it must have been like when you're like, whoa, that dude that was walking with us the whole time, that was Jesus. All the stories that we thought, that was, that was all about Jesus. And it always has been. And they'd been missing it. But they didn't have to miss it anymore. Think of the joy they felt when it speaks to how their hearts were beating crazy within their chest. I want to ask you a question. When's the last thing that made your heart burn in your chest like that? A new car? new home? Some hot chick on your arm? How long did that last? You know? You still make my heart burn, baby. I'm, I'm not, that, was a, that was a bad example. That's why I don't go off the script. So... We'll go back to the car in the house. Forget about the fly woman on your arm because she, she's still right there. <laughs> Whew. I'm, I'm glad I corrected that before I got home. <laughs> but when is the last time you felt that alive? Just like these two didn't have to miss it anymore, guess what? You don't have to miss it. You know that feeling that Luke describes of a heart beating inside of your chest? That's how you know that you're alive. I'm going to be real with you. If something is not making you alive, it's making you dead. And that's truth. That's truth. You could take that to the bank. Inside and eternally. And I don't want to be dead no more. Let me hear you say, I don't want to be dead no more. I don't care if you don't like the grammar. I don't want to be dead no more. Anyone feel me on that? Anyone? Can I get an amen? Anyone feel me on that? All right. Well, then, why do most people who claim Christ live for things that don't bring life if you don't want to be dead no more? We could sit in the church on Sunday and say we don't want to be dead no more and then go out and live for things that bring death all week that don't make sense. That's hypocrisy. And it's filled in the church. But let me continue. The story continues. I'm a little fired up. I'm sorry. The Apostle John picks up this story. And he tells you just how old school this story really is. If you flip just over another page to John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, down to verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, yet his people did not receive him. But to all who received him he, and believed in his name, he gave the right. This is talking to you. He gave you the right to be called children of God if you believe in his name. Does that not make you feel alive this morning? Who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John takes us on a voyage, and he talks us, he takes the story a step further, and he talks about this one called the Word, 
and he says that the Word is God. The Word was coming from God. The Word has always been with God. So this Word that's coming into the world, make no mistake about it. I don't care what the Jehovah's Witness that knocks on your door might tell you. That Word has always been God. And he was going to come and take the Word, the inspired story, and he was going to wrap flesh on it. And it happened in a manger that first Christmas morning. That's when the Word became flesh. That's when the story put on a meat suit and dwelt amongst us. So I want to just give you a little bit of idea of what Jesus did. I'm going to take you on a, on a tour. I'm going to walk through the whole Old Testament in five minutes and show you what Jesus did to the disciples on the road to Nazareth as he was walking with them in Luke 24 and show you how he's always been the story. So from Genesis, the story became flesh. In Genesis 3.15, it says that there would become one. This is after the curse had come into the world, and it says that this one would be born the seed of a woman, and he would crush the wicked serpent. And the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head and mortally wound him forever. He came into the world on Christmas when the Son of God put on flesh and came to ransom a bunch of rebels. In the law, the story became flesh. Deuteronomy 18.18 says that there's a prophet. This is Moses speaking, like me, who's going to arise. And what he means is greater than me, and he's going to come. You're looking at me and he's saying, no, no, don't look at me. There's going to come one into the world who's going to be far greater than me. That happened on Christmas. That's when that prophet was born. I remember when I was saved like two weeks. I was sitting in a rehab. I was still kicking like Bruce Lee. And man, I'm trying to witness to a Muslim. And he took that verse and he twisted me like a pretzel. And he told me that that verse was talking about the coming of Muhammad. I didn't like the way that felt. I didn't like being able to not be able to defend my Savior or my Bible. So I went and studied that book. And you know what I learned? That's not talking about Muhammad. Muhammad's dead. Go to a tomb. His bones are in there. And on top of that, he was a murderer and a terrorist. All right, let's just be real. That's who Muhammad was. Muhammad was not great. Muhammad was not somebody to be worshiped and I would take a bullet for that any day. Muhammad was not the prophet. He's a dead liar. Moses was talking about Jesus, and the greater than prophet that he predicted would arrive was born on Christmas. And the prophets, the word became flesh. Isaiah 9, 6, it tells us that there was this child that would be born. He would be given to us. The government of the world, meaning all of the kingdoms, would rest on his shoulders. They predicted that the child would come and enter the story, and this child would take the broken kingdom that we're living in right now, and he would begin to make right that which was broken by sin, and the child entered the story on Christmas. In the poetic books, guess what? The story became flesh. Psalm 110.1 says, Sit at my right hand of the Father until 
you go and make all of my enemies a footstool that will be underneath my feet. David predicted that the one who sat at the right hand of the Father would come and subject everything to God's dominion again. He left his father's side that first Christmas morning. And he began a dominion that will someday will take all that is broken and wrong, all that is hurting and pain. Anybody been hurting and painful? Man, I, I'm just going to be real with you. I have had one of the hardest weeks of my life. I don't have tears to cry anymore. My tear, I probably still do because they're coming out. My tear ducts, man, they've just been filled all week long. And someday it's saying that there's going to come a superhero that's going to come. And he's going to make right and put all of that wickedness as a footrest underneath his feet, according to this passage. Listen, folks, to have dominion, you need to have a king. And that king was born Christmas morning. Think about Think about that word footstool. You know what that's saying? That thing that you think that you'll never get through? That thing that you think is going to defeat you? That thing that's beating you up right now? That thing that you got, that, 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 that sin that you can't master? It's going to be a footrest for Jesus when it comes back. That's what that word means in the Hebrew. It means he's going to kick his feet up on that and he's going to be lounging because he's already defeated it and the work has already been done on the cross. The hard work's been done. The rest of the story is just being written, folks. Even in the last book of the Old Testament. Oh, I missed one. The historical books. I didn't want you to think that they didn't speak of the story that would come and become flesh. Esther speaks of a ruler who left her earthly palace to come to the rescue of her people. Our Savior is a hero who left the only true palace, the heavenly palace, the real palace, to come and rescue a people that didn't deserve it. Esther thought she was, she was coming to save and rescue her kin. Jesus was rescuing those who spit on him and mocked him and beat him and nailed him to a cross and rebelled against him since the beginning of humanity. And that happened on the first Christmas morning. And in the last book of the Old Testament, just so you know that Luke 24 is accurate, Malachi speaks of a storyteller that would come on the scene. And according to that story, that he's going to set everything in motion. And then the Old Testament suddenly ends. It's over. You turn over one page from Malachi, then it's the book of Matthew. And guess what? The very next thing that happens is the story is arriving on the scene when we turn the page. Literally, I, I could have just gone on for hours. But just like Luke said in Luke 24, I was just able to show you from the law, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the historical books, wisdom literature, the poetic books, how the word put on flesh and how the story became consummated on that first Christmas morning. And it all started on Christmas. So I want to give you some application before we go and baptize some people. I'm going to hit hard. When you read the Bible, do you read it like it's a book about you and what you need to do? 
Is that what you come to church for so that I can moralize you and say, all right, here's ten ways to go be a better person this week. Hang them on your fridge. Do nine of them, and Jesus will love you more. Is that why you come here? Do you think that that's what the Bible is about? That's hogwash. Or do you realize that it's a book about him? And it's a serious question, man, because for years, I go back and I read the notes and the margins of my Bibles, and I'm, I'm embarrassed because I thought the Bible was all about me. All the notes in my margins, they've got one subject to the sentence. I, me, and my. Every sentence, it says that, literally. But there's nothing in there that includes the glory of God or his character. So I would have said that it was a book about him, but I read it like it was a book by him written about me. So do you read the Bible like it's about you or like it's about him? I'm going to start hit harder. Is Christ the main character of your story? We're taking a detour from our story in Acts. But you know what? People always tell me that they want the church to start to look like the church in Acts. And you know what I say? No, you don't. And why are we even going to front like we do? That's not truth. The reason that the book of Acts is what it is is because Jesus is the main character of every single story in that book. We can't have Jesus be a side note and expect the same results as people that lived like Jesus was the only reason for the story. You can't have the same results, folks. It can't happen. They're diametrically opposed to one another. It's two entirely different approaches to life. Number three, if Christ is truly the story of your life, then he should be your defining narrative. And this is the truth that was my lifeline all week. I'm not preaching from up here on an ivory tower, folks. I'm preaching things that I said on the phone with Seski and talked about this week and said, remind me of this, because I need to hear this right now. I sat on the phone with several of you this week, and I said, I need to remind, be reminded that Christ is the narrative, the defining narrative of my story. You should have no other narrative that defines you. If you have another narrative that defines you, that is the same as you shall have no other gods before me. Because that other narrative is another God that you have before you. So let not singleness, let not pain, let not suffering, let not success, let not ambition be your narrative. If he is your narrative, he is your story. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen? All right, now let's, let's hit to where you, you, can hit, you can hear all those things and say, all right, that's cool. I'm going to live like Christ is my story. I'm going to give you something practical. Does your bank statement show that Christ is your story? You know what? I've always been the pastor that's been afraid to talk about money. I've always worried, like, hey, if I, if, if, if I hit hard on loot this week, that's going to be the week that a visitor shows up and be like, Oh, that's just one of them money-grubbing pastors. You know what? If some fool thinks that, I don't care. I'm, I'm tired of pandering to caring about that. Because you know what? I'm not, and I know my heart's clean. I'm not driving no fancy cars. 
I don't get a big paycheck, so I don't want your money. I'm not talking about it for the church. I'm not talking about it for me. I'm talking about your heart, and I'm here to be faithful to God's word, not your sensitivities. And the reality is that there's a lot of people that hang around the church for years, and they just live in sin, and they don't give, and they need to be called out on it. Your lack of giving is sin, and it's disrespecting God. If you are not giving a sizable portion of your income until it hurts, you are disrespecting God. And you know what? The people that don't, they're usually the troublemakers, so I wouldn't care if I offended them anyway. I honestly want to ask you to assess your spending habits. You all got the apps on your phone. I'll bet you some of it have checked it since the church service has started. How's my money doing? How's my money doing? It ain't your money. It's God's. How's God's money doing? So does the way that you spend your money reflect that Christ is the main character of your story? Because I'm going to tell you, you tell me that Christ is the main character of your story, I'm going to say, show me your wallet. And I'll tell you if Christ is the main character of your story. Because if all of your spending is on you, guess who's the main character of your story? Let me hear you say it. I want you to acknowledge it. I want to hear it loud. You. If all you spend on is toys so that you can make a kingdom here on earth, when this ain't a kingdom, this is the closest to hell that a Christian will ever be. And if you want to accoutrate this place, and you're spending on that, then he's not your story. You are your story. And if that offends somebody, repent. Last, and I'm going to lighten up. Are you still amazed by the story? And I've read so many pastors say that Christmas and Easter are the toughest sermons to preach because people have heard it all already. What text can I preach? How could I possibly preach Matthew chapter 1 and 2 again? How could I possibly preach Luke 2 again? They've already heard it. How can I preach Isaiah 9, 6? They've already heard it. How can I preach Isaiah 7, 14? They've already heard it. So what? Who cares? If you hear that God created a story before the foundation of time, he knew that you'd rebel against him anyway. He knew that it would cost him his life to hatch a rescue plan, to come and ransom you, to bring you back to himself. And he included all of that. And then he came and put on flesh on that first Christmas so that he'd come and rescue a fallen, rebellious people. How could that story ever grow old? Are you amazed at the story? I've just been sitting this morning just reflecting in amazement, my heart beating in my chest like Luke 24, just pumping, saying, oh, the story is just as real as it was on that day as they walked to Emmaus. The story is just as good. The story's lost no flavor. The story don't need no hot sauce on it to give it any extra flavor. The story is good. Is the story still got you in wonder and captivated in amazement today? 
So we're about to celebrate just how relevant that story is through baptism. I'm going to ask the baptizees if they would go and prepare themselves. And as we celebrate baptism, these folks are proclaiming that they want their story to be Christ's story. And they want to show the world that they identify with Christ's story. What they're showing you is they want to be clothed and robed in Christ's story. Baptism does not save you. It is an expression, a declaration, and a proclamation that he is the king and I am not. And from now on, I am going to live as if he is king and I am not. This is his story. This is his song, praising our Savior all the day long. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are the grand story who put on flesh to dwell among us. May we be captivated by that story today. In Jesus' name, amen.